Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanwell Major, and welcome to another in the series of ABC of Boating. And this week we're on the letter E. Now, there was a little bit of debate going on as to what I was going to do for E because uh, initially I, I just kind of couldn't think of anything on a boat that began with E. I was like, escutcheon plates? Uh, Epurb? Like, there was a couple things there to talk about. And then someone pointed out to me that emergency begins with an E and therefore, you know, there's going to always be things to talk about. So I was thinking, oh, emergency steering and emergency rig cutaway. And then for a little while I was thinking we might do entropy and I think we might come back to that. Entropy is the natural... Um, characteristic that all things in the universe have to kind of fall back into their constituent parts. And for us on boats, that means we are delving into the dark world of the fact that the boat is forever trying to get itself to the bottom of the ocean or fall in a million pieces or become rust or become whatever it is it's becoming. And it's just us and, uh, and our family and friends that are the, oh, and very expensive service providers who are the, um, the bastion that's holding back entropy. Um, when I looked into it, I think there's loads to talk about on that. I think preventative maintenance and the things that people do to keep their boats running, that's a huge area. And I'm going to subdivide it down so we can look at metals, we can look at wood, we can look at protective coverings, we can look at preventative maintenance. They're all different parts. To, to scan over the whole thing inside of two hours would not serve, the, uh, not serve you and not serve the subject very well. So I decided that I'm going to talk about estimated position error. So some of you, this will be a, a phrase, a, a, a thing that you've seen probably on your chart plotter. There's, uh, I, I have some Raymarine gear on the boat. Simrad also has it. Um, I'm not sure about B&G and some of the others, but there's going to be something somewhere, which is a piece of data that you can view if you uh, want to choose to view that on your chart plotter and it is the estimated error in the position which is being given to you and when you think about it it's very very important piece of information to know gps is awesome like you can be accurate to within literally the length of your cockpit it's unbelievable most of the time we don't need that kind of accuracy i'm not using the gps to work out how far it is to the dock. I've got somebody on the bow that's you know calling down six meters five meters four meters i don't use a gps for that what I want to know is, am I going to hit the rocks? Am I going to hit the ground? Am I going to crash into something? That's what we're primarily using our navigation for. So to understand what the error is, is absolutely critical. Now, if we go back to older systems of navigation, it was inherent in the way that they were displayed on the chart that you knew there was error. Anybody that's done coastal navigation or celestial navigation, once you come up with that uh, three lines crossing and a little triangle that they invariably make in the middle, that cocked hat, as we call it, the three three cornered hat, the th cocked hat in the center of those three position lines, that's your that's your estimated position error. Now, in reality, your three lines could be completely the wrong position, but roughly that triangle shows you where you might be. How do you then decide where exactly in that triangle you are? Well, you just make sure that you orientate yourself towards the most dangerous corner of the triangle. So if you've got a, a big triangle, which brings you close to some reefs on one side, then you estimate that your position is at the most dangerous part of the triangle. But how do you do that with GPS? It's just a little dot or an icon or an arrow or something which indicates where the boat is, but there is error in it. And if you're not displaying it on the screen, there can be big problems. So that's going to be the subject of today's discussion. As always, I'm going to shoot from the hips. You've got to imagine us just sitting on the deck of a boat. It's a night watch. There's 
not much else to do. Um, people start chatting and I guess in my business in sail training, what I tend to end up chatting on is subjects relating to sailing. So if you've not heard one of these before, it's time to go and get your cup of coffee or your tea or tisane or whatever it is that you're going to enjoy. It's going to be about two hours and we're going to talk first about the history of navigation and how we've ended up in today's world where we are relying so much on a form of navigation, electronic navigation, GPS navigation. And within that, we have no idea what the error is. We need to understand how to mitigate this. We need to understand how it comes about and we need to have some tactics on hand so that that error cannot end up becoming an emergency for us. So for today, E is for estimated position error. Sit yourself down, listen in, and let's see if we can work out the fact from the fiction. Okay, well, this subject is obviously very close to my heart. Um, 25 years at sea, I was very lucky to have excellent mentors at the beginning and tutors. But as you know, when you're working on board a boat, um, if you're in the bosun's seat going up the mast, if you're in the galley cooking things, if you're on the deck scrubbing, uh, those are my early experiences as a tall ship sailor. You're a very long way from the navigation desk and being able to understand the mysteries held therein. I was very lucky because I worked on a tall ship which was operated by Outward Bound. So rather than being in the situation where a few people have a lot of information and they maintain their control and lord it over everybody else by holding on to information, uh, I was in a wonderful circumstance where I had people who were willing to teach and to share and to open up the mystery of navigation. Specifically, that was Captain Greg Tonneson and our chief mate Steve Burton and uh, our stand-in chief mate Donald Tam. And uh, through those three fantastic gentlemen, I was able to gain not only an appreciation for navigation, uh, but also develop maybe even a little bit of a love for it. So my background um, began with trusting people, trusting those who were senior to me on the vessel, and I had good reason to trust them. Steve had been in the British Royal Navy and was an ocean master examiner. Captain Tonneson was a um, commercial mariner, uh, able to take uh, big ships to sea, not a, an RYA person, but an, an MCA type. And Donald Tam, I don't know what his qualifications were, but my God, he knew a lot about what was going on. And uh, I learned more by betting with him, he would give me 10,000 to one bets. I'd say, Donald, I don't think that knot's going to work. And he said, I bet you 10,000 to one that it will work. And uh, by the time I left the Out of Bounds School, I owed him millions. Thank God he let me off. But um, those three people kept us safe as we journeyed around the South China Sea. And it was never a question, really, that, uh, you know, are, are we actually safe here? But I was doing that in 1996. 1997. And at that point, we only really sort of just come out of the era of the sextant, of, of working out where the vessel was by using a sextant, by taking sights, which has been a major part of seafaring for 600, 700 years, something like that. So where does it all begin? It begins thousands of years ago with the Polynesians. You're talking about 3000 BC. Our first evidence is that Polynesians were making their way from island to island using 
what would be considered advanced uh, ocean techniques to or ocean navigation techniques to get them reliably from A to B. Now, rather than going through generalities, let's look at one specific um, uh, one specific example of incredible navigation, and we can try and back engineer how they did it. So let's have a look at the Polynesian uh, inhabitation of Easter Island. Now, if you don't know exactly where Easter Island is, it's kind of bang in the middle of the Pacific. It's the easiest way to explain it. If you were to go uh, halfway down the west coast of South America and then go about um, one third of the way across the Pacific towards New Zealand, you'd be in the right kind of spot. So what's going on in that area? Well, we know from the Contiki expedition that there is the Humboldt Current, which runs up the west coast of South America and then arches out, heading west, out into the um, French Polynesian islands. That's the one that Thor Herendal went down with the Contiki expedition. Easter Island is kind of bang in that area. It's, uh, it's just, uh, Ecuador is on the equator. We're about 20, 30 degrees south of that. I should actually get the exact uh, um, <laughs> coordinates for the place. But to say it's in the middle of nowhere is a, a massive piece of uh, understatement. I've, I've sailed from New Zealand to South America. There's a point that you pass which is called Point Nemo. It's the most remote place on the planet and about the closest place to Point Nemo is Easter Island. So it's a um, triangular shaped island. It's kind of 10 miles by 10 miles by 15. It's a, like a right angle triangle with the hypotenuse being um, about 15 miles. And it's... Um, it's out in the middle of nowhere. The within twenty miles of the coast of uh, of East Island, the depth of the water is about three thousand meters. That's like ten thousand feet, something like that. It comes up. If you were to be able to see this thing from the land, if you were if the oceans were drained, this thing is just a spike in the middle of nowhere. Now it was supposedly um, inhabited first by. Uh, Polynesians that came down, they think, from the Marquesi Islands, uh, which is about 2,300 miles to the northwest of Easter Island. Now, what's very interesting about this is that there are certain mm, logistical details which are worth considering. If you're setting off to go and mm, go fishing, something like that, the likelihood of you having in your boat enough stores, supplies and wherewithal and propulsive methods and everything else to cover 2,300 miles in the kind of time period that we're looking at here, which is either the archaeologists think it's, and the historians think it's um, about 400 BC, and linguists think it's about 400 AD. But within that 800-year um, gap, you can imagine what the technology is like, right? We're talking sandals, canoes, herding goats, maybe some porcelain, um, not porcelain, but uh, clay pots, um, very, very basic metallurgy. Yes, we've got some metals. The design of the boats, the rafts, that kind of thing that they're using, probably a little bit more advanced, but we're talking basic. And yet somehow these people were able to set off with what is described as an organized band of um, immigrants or emigrants, I guess they'd be, but explorers, adventurers, set, looking to set up another colony. And they managed to move themselves from the Marqueses, 2,300 miles to the southeast, and they nailed Easter Island. Now, had they missed Easter Island, it's another 
2,000 miles to the coast of South America, and you're going up against the Humboldt current to get them. So it would seem that it's very specific that they came to this place. They weren't like out fishing and it kind of happened. They set off with enough people to make it happen. But at a pinch, a human population can go down to about 50 and you'll be okay that there's enough diversity to um, stop things from getting too shallow in the gene pool. But really you want about 500. So what are we looking at here? Are we looking at a kind of flotilla of, of canoes uh, that are setting off with at least 50 people on board? Are we looking at the fact that maybe there was some specific current or wind pattern that used to forever keep blowing fishermen in the same direction? Like, no, I think what we're looking at is we're looking at a specific act of navigation and one which could not stand very much position error. These people had to navigate directly to this point. Now, how are they doing it? Well, there's a couple of tricks that we know of as sailors that can help us. We know that looking at the sun, looking at the stars, looking at the moon can all be very helpful. But I think we're all vaguely aware of the fact that it takes quite a lot of maths, some geometry, some kind of recording device, books of tables, all that kind of stuff. So that seems like that might be a little bit far beyond them. It's thought, looking at the oral traditions, which are still passed down in that part of the world, that they would be using well, kind of a mix of ocean navigation and pilotage. Pilotage is where you use visual reference to be able to navigate the vessel safely. So for most of us, you'd navigate to the entrance of the harbor and then you'd use pilotage to get you to your berth. If you're in the Navy, which I had my opportunity to try a little bit of that when I was in the Royal Naval Reserve, we do pilotage. Um, entry to port would be done by pilotage. So the captain would say, okay, Chris, you're going to be the pilot taking us into port tomorrow. I want to see a pilotage uh, plan before we are, you know, within 100 miles of the coast or whatever it is. So fine, bring it to him. And it's going to have loads of information in a notebook, which is all of the information and all of the cues that I need so that I can navigate the vessel safely into the harbor without having to reference a chart. Now, you can use the Polaris, the, the, um, the, the compass, the, the sighting compass, which is on the bridge of the ship to get angles on particular headlands. And you can work out how to use those angles to keep you safe and how to use those angles to avoid danger. But I'm using pilotage to get into the port. So most of the navigation that was going on in the ancient world was a form of pilotage. They had people, pilots, who were, knew the area, knew the land, knew all of the little um, tells and, and waves and puffs of wind and all that kind of stuff. And they got themselves to a point where they could use that knowledge, lever that knowledge to, to run a career, run a, a business, whatever it was, getting ships, vessels safely from A to B. When you're crossing 2,300 miles of open water, and I mean nautical miles here, so we're talking, we're knocking on the door of 5,000 kilometers. 2,300 miles is equivalent of sailing from where I am now in Nova Scotia to England. So these are people are crossing the Atlantic and then nailing something which is 10 miles by 10 miles by 15, which is like me setting off from here and hitting, oh, one of the Channel Islands. There you go. That'd be about right. Sailing from here and nailing one of the Channel Islands with nothing else to save me if I miss it. Now, of course, there's tricks that we can get involved in, which is like clouds sit up above islands and you can see them for quite a long way off. But I'm going to need to be roughly within 100 miles accurate by the time I get there, having crossed from Nova Scotia to the Channel Islands. 
the likelihood of this happening with no knowledge is just zero. You know, I suppose there's luck, of course. The Mary Celeste supposedly sailed across however much of the Atlantic she was without crew and supposedly straight through the uh, Straits of Gibraltar. But um, these things are quite exceptional. Normally, of course, it goes wrong. So these people set off with a contingent of their fellow kinsmen um, big enough to set up a new colony, uh, let's say latest 400 AD, and um, and nailed it. Now, we don't know if there were other expeditions that didn't make it. We don't know how many of their band might have been lost, but we can say for a fact that people were navigating in this fashion at least 2,000 years ago. Now, the issue that the Polynesians were facing to navigate from the Marqueses to Easter Island was a problem of latitude and longitude. They had to know how far down the planet to go, how far down the Pacific, and how far around the planet to the east they needed to go. The Navigation, which happens when you're just trying to solve latitude problems, is a lot easier. And for that, let's have a look at the Vikings a couple thousand years later, but latitude was the only issue they needed to solve. How did they do that? Well, they had a bit easier job to, to get from A to B than the Polynesians. If they're starting off in Scandinavia, obviously they only have to go a certain amount to the west and they've hit Iceland. They then only have to go a certain amount further to the west and they've hit Greenland and they just have to kind of keep going west and you're going to end up hitting some part of the Americas. Now, of course, just to drive into what would be like Baffin Bay directly west of Greenland, we wouldn't be in very hospitable places. It'd be a lot colder there and a lot more ice flows. But with a series of very simple calculations, they could find their way. If you're able to take a sight of the North Star in the uh, northern horizon, basically its angle above the horizon is your latitude. If you're standing at the North Pole, the North Star's basically directly above you. Its angle from your position is 90 degrees and you're at the North Pole, so your latitude is 90. If you're at the equator, you can only just about see the North Star. It's virtually on the horizon. That's because your latitude is basically zero. Southern Hemisphere, <clears throat> I don't know. Write me a postcard. Tell me how you do it. Okay, so the period when navigation really starts to take off is what's known as the age of exploration. That really starts in the in the 1400s, Columbus and everything that he was doing. We're going to discuss that later. For people like the Vikings, that was about 1000 AD. They had uh, the compass, which they had picked up from the Chinese 500 years before. We're going to be discussing that. Other than that, they were using sun sights and star sights. And then they would only need to know the North Star or other stars which rise and set during the night. And they just need to take measurements of those. If you want to know your latitude and maintain a constant latitude, if you have a star which is rising during the night and then setting during the night, it will come to a point where it's a particular height above the horizon. You can keep monitoring it. It's not going to pass as quickly as the sun does through its highest point. But you can have a little piece of wood with you, something like that, that's got a hole in it and a previous successful navigation uh, to the place that you want to go to would give you the other ingredient you need, which is a little notch on the side of your piece of wood. And you line the notch up with the horizon, you line the hole in the top with the star. And as long as the star is in the hole and the notch is on the horizon, when the star is at the top, the apogee of its um, curve through the night sky, then you are at the latitude that you want to be at, as long as all other things remain you know, within the bounds of what's been set up. So that's the right star, it's the right time of year. 
you know when you're traveling, if the star ends up being a little bit too uh, low, not able to meet the notch, then you need to go to the south, more towards the uh, setting sun. And if the star is too high in the sky, then you've gone a little bit too far, maybe north, depending on what the star is, and you um, need to make an adjustment to your course. So using this method, they would know what was the latitude of the point that they were heading towards. So if you're setting out from Scandinavia, you know the latitude of Iceland. Once the expedition's been done and found Greenland, you know what that latitude is, you know which star you need to work to, you maybe have to go to a different piece of wood, and you can make very simple hops across the Atlantic. And the only thing that you need to know is your latitude. It's super simple. The sun comes up roughly to the east, the sun goes down roughly to the west, you know maybe the angles specifically that it's coming up and going down by observation. And so you can you can do very simple open ocean navigation, relying on the fact that basically you don't drive into anything that's directly under the, the, the waves. If you drive onto some shallow reef or something, you've got a problem. But as we all know, there's not really anything in the middle of the Atlantic that could do that. The Azores, um, the Canaries, the, you know, the Cape Verdes, but they're all, you know, they're all way out the way of the, uh, the Viking, um, explorers and, um, pretty easy to spot. So, you can make your way around the planet quite well as long as where you need to go is directly east or west of you because you can always calculate your latitude with reference to certain stars or to the sun makes it life easy. And this would be something that would be available to very early navigators. So the Polynesians, however much credit we give them for their excellent navigation, probably already knew where Easter Island was. Quite how that happened, we don't know. But once they knew what it was, they might have the basics to be able to find their way back. Clearly they did. They probably did it by understanding the waves and the propagating waves as they were coming with the Humboldt current, as the um, weather systems were coming in, as the um, waves are wrapping around islands and being split by islands. It would make known patterns. And there's some interesting evidence in the oral history of those areas where um, mentor and student are able to uh, transfer information uh, using uh, interlaced palm fronds and seashells. So you can take a palm frond, you can split it along the spine, and that gives you a um, well, actually very good for making shelters and roofs if you're ever bivouacking in that part of the world. But uh, what's the best way of putting this? How do you, what's half a palm frond? How do you describe that? We well, got half a palm frond. There you go. <laughs> it looks like half a palm frond, and um, you can interlace those in. And the uh, fronds of the palm represent waves. So lining up alongside each other, parallel lines represented by the leaves of the palm tree. You can then interlace them to show the way, okay, these waves come from here and these waves come from there. And then when you get to this apex where the waves are kind of meeting, then at this point you need to wait for the sun to come up and then you need to be 10 degrees to the, you can use it as a kind of navigational method because their close observation of the land and sea around them led them to a point that they had this detailed understanding of the weather. They would also know cloud patterns and the directions that clouds move because you have trade winds in that part of the world as well, just as easily as you do in the Atlantic and you can follow the winds. You can go across the winds, you can go up the winds, you can go down the wind until you get to the apex of the waves and then go across the wind and then you get to a different kind of wave and then you can, so you can navigate that way and the shells would be positioned onto this um, chart, this wave chart of palm fronds to indicate, okay, here's the island, here's the island. So once you've got that in your head and kind of understood the interrelationship of the islands and the interrelationship of the wave sets, then you could start to do some basic nav. You know, little things like if you see a, 
a seabird that's got a, a, a fish in its mouth or a fish in its gullet, it's probably going back to the shore. There's very few smaller seabirds that don't go ashore for you know the evening and to eat and to feed their young and what have you. So if a seabird's got a fish and it's it's heading off somewhere, it's probably heading towards land. If it's um, not got anything in its mouth, it may well be going out to sea, which means you can discount it or maybe work on the basis that, well, it's the morning, it's going out, it's got nothing in its mouth, it's probably coming from an island. We've also talked in the past about the fact that the uh, the use of land birds was uh, was frequently done, certainly in that northern Atlantic navigation way back in the day, where they'd have crows and doves and pigeons and things like that, and they would be released into the air. And obviously from that height, if they could see land, then they'd head off that way. We even hear about those kind of things in biblical text where little details like the dove came back with an olive branch is a very good indicator that that little nugget of information is a navigational fact from you know quite a long time ago, not exactly thousands of years, but probably hundreds and hundreds of years uh, of, of details being included in these texts, uh, which lead us today to be able to dig through, sift through and understand how people got from point to point. When we discussed bees for boating, we discussed the fact that um, some of the earliest uh, recorded uh, conveyances across the water, coracles and, and logs and that kind of thing, are thousands of years old. We had some circumstantial evidence of the fact that the population of the island of Flores in Indonesia, because it's never been connected to a larger landmass and because they found evidence there of humans and there'd be no way for humans to evolve there on their own, they must have crossed the water to get there. So again, these people were doing um, very basic navigation uh, to give, give them credit for it. They, you know, they, were, they were making it happen with what they had. Now, as I say, the 5th century gets interesting. The 5th century is where you have the introduction of the compass. But I think there's uh, one notable addition that we should make here, and that's the Antikythera mechanism. If you haven't heard about this, I think you're going to like it. So in 1901, there was a device found, uh, which is now known as the Antikythera mechanism. It was found off the Greek island of um, Antikythera. And about a year after discovering it, uh, they discovered that there were cogs inside it, that there were gears inside it. Now, the technology at that time period was not very good for looking inside things, but you can imagine, as we now spool forward 120 years, a lot of extra knowledge has come out of this thing. And what we seem to have is an orrery. So an orrery is a represent mechanical representation of the solar system, moons turning around planets, planets turning around the sun, and all of them... Uh, controlled by a, a geared mechanism. This is something which I think we can agree shows a pretty advanced understanding of the solar system. Now, the interesting thing with this device, and that's why I've kind of thrown it in here before we get onto compasses, is that it's uh, aged, it's, it's dated to around 100 to 150 BC. This thing has 35 bronze gears inside it. It still has writing uh, on the on the faces, which we can read. Thank goodness the way it was um, uh, covered up in the shipwreck, it didn't uh, degrade too badly. Uh, and it has months, Egyptian months, marked onto it. Uh, we can see that there are gears which track the sun, gears that track the moon, and gears that track the five known planets at that time. So at that time, they knew about Mercury, uh, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, 
and Saturn. And that's about all they knew about. They didn't know about the things that are out further than that, things that you could observe with the eye. So this orrery is able to note the movement of these plants. Now, in fairness, it's not very accurate. And I understand that at times, things like the orbit of Mars can be out by 38 degrees, which is which is quite a lot. But if you think about it, you know, it's 45 degrees. If you were looking up at somewhere that it had pointed you to look and then you had to look 38 degrees left or right to find the thing you were looking for, you know, it's not that far out. But I think the understanding is that basically it's not the mechanical. There are some issues with the fact that the way the gears are made, they're triangular and they're hand cut. But it's not really the kind of um, the organization of the gears that's the issue. It's the fact that at that time, science was laboring under the Ptolemaic um, concept that we had a geocentric solar system with the Earth at the center and the planets going around it, rather than the later heliocentric model, which is, of course, the Copernican revolution. But for this device at this time, it wouldn't have actually made any difference. You're just noting the movement of things that are moving in your sky. So whether it's you that's moving or that them that's moving, it, as long as this thing keeps track of it, it's fine. Now, the it also, I believe, uh, would mark the coming and going of the Olympiad. The ancient uh, Egyptian, uh, Egyptian, ancient Greek Olympiad also had its own dial on here. That's how important that was. So it was a way of keeping track of what was going on, but it was found in a shipwreck. Now, it could have been being transported from A to B. It could have been a prototype. We have no idea, but it's a little suspicious to me that it was on a shipwreck um, and wouldn't it be useful to be on a ship and then know where particular planets are? The fact that it could help you know where the moon is and what the moon's doing is very important. We're going to talk a little bit later on about lunars, and that comes to us from the fact that I'm sure you're aware that I'm reading the Joshua Slocum book, uh, Alone Around the World. He uses lunars, lunar sites, to be able to calculate his longitude. Longitude, not latitude, longitude. So if you've got the sun organized, you've got the moon organized, you've actually got a source of navigation which was still in current use, we could say, in 1895 with our man Joshua Slocum sailing around the world. So we should throw that in there. I think the other thing I'd like to throw in is the fact that the, the solar yacht, which was found next to the Great Pyramid in Egypt, most people, when it was dug up 100 years ago, they believed it was just a funerary boat. Um, and it, indeed, I'm sure that's exactly what it is. It's, uh, you know, for the, the, the dead pharaoh to ascend to the heavens or whatever. But the fact is that the way that it's designed indicates that the people that built it knew about going out into the open ocean. The way that the, the backbone of the ship is put together, the way the ribs are put together, the way that it's got a very high bow on it. You learn these things when you go out into the bigger sea. Now, I will say the Mediterranean can blow up like no man's business. Like I've I've done damage to yachts uh, sailing through the Mediterranean Sea in such big waves. So you could go and learn an awful lot about the open ocean by just sailing around in the Mediterranean, which obviously the Egyptians had massive access to at the delta of the Nile. But those designs could take you as far as you wanted to go. And the technology which is being exhibited here built probably 100 BC so 2000 uh, 2100 years ago something like that uh, they had the technology there to do some pretty awesome navigation um, the next bit which comes along is the 
the compass, and that has Chinese origins. At first, it was a piece of um, metal, which was attached to a piece of wood, which was floating in a bowl. But very quickly, they realized, well, very quickly, over a couple hundred years, they realized it's better to have a magnetized pointer, which is uh, attached to a card, and the card moves, and then you can sort of see what's going on. The card then is it is, uh, keeps its uh, reference to a pointer that's on the bezel of the compass. So by the time you've got a compass... Oh, I guess we should also mention here the fact that another key navigational tool was a, a sounding lead, some kind of line that could be dropped over the side with a heavy weight on it so that you can judge how deep the bottom is. And then very, very quickly, they would put something sticky on the bottom of that sounding lead so that they could uh, sample the bottom. So you could see if it's mud or if it's shell or if it's gravel. Another great way of knowing where you are because you can track what's on the bottom. You can track the depth of the bottom. So they knew about that. The other thing, of course, is the log. Did they know how fast they were going? I'll pop that in now because, of course, that's a question that's going to be coming up for a lot of people. Basically, the chip log, the Dutchman's log, all came after the 15th century. So at this point, they're really guessing, but they know where the bottom is. They know where the sun and stars are. By the time you've got uh, something that can mark the movement of the moon, by the time you've got ships that are being built in such a way that they can take on the worst the Mediterranean has, you really have a lot of tools there that can allow you to do a lot of good navigation as well as the pilotage things that we talked about. Navigation by, let's say, the um, 5th century, we had a lot of the pieces in place that they needed to go further. But when did it sort of explode? When did we start get, getting going? Well, the 15th century is seen as like the age of exploration. And this, a lot of this was to do with the fact that spices were in uh, Asia. They were growing more in those tropical regions and those spices were starting to become very, very useful. Now, this is something which I've wrestled with over the years when I've thought about this stuff is, you know, why were they so interested in spices? Like, was it really that important to, you know, flavor your food, go and get cinnamon and nutmeg and all these things? And I had a, a personal experience, which kind of put a little bit of um, uh, clarity on that uh, a couple of years ago. I was doing the, um, which was it? It was the Rourke Transat in 2017 and uh, set off from uh, Lanzarote about two or three days out with probably 14 people on the boat and I'm the 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 source of what's going on I'm the the, the captain and, and the only one on board that really knows what's happening actually my man John Williams is on there so I wasn't the only smart bean on board there was a few smart beans but um I got stricken down and I got stricken down by in the weirdest way so I went to sleep I, this is related don't worry it's related to what's going on I, I went to sleep woke up felt like I had been chewing glass it literally felt like the inside of my mouth should be bleeding I, I didn't know what I'd done I thought bitten my cheek or I, I had no clue to begin with. Ask someone looking in my mouth, can you see anything? No, 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 no blood. Just very, very, very sore. Couldn't eat, no appetite whatsoever and um, felt utterly miserable. Second day, same thing. Now I'm starting to get kind of, I didn't feel hungry. I didn't have any kind of particular um, appetite, um, but obviously my energy is getting lower. Third day, still not eating, not good. Um, now at a point where I found on board custard. For some reason, we had a couple of um, one liter tubs of um, ambrosia custard, which if you're going to be sick, eating ambrosia custard is about as good as it gets. But um, that seemed to make the pain worse. And then uh, the only thing I had which seemed to numb it is I had some Hall's mentholyptus, I think they're called uh, throat sweets, which are numbing. So I could drink a lot of 
uh, custard to try and get my sugars and then eat the meth- mentholiptus. That's the brand name, I think, mentholiptus um, sweets, and that would stop the pain. So by day four, things are not good. So I get on the horn to a friend of mine who's an MD, and I explain to him what's going on. And he says, do you have a white residue in your mouth? Now, many people here are going, ah, yes, I do have a white residue in my mouth. He said, then you have thrush in your mouth. And at first I was like, oh my God, like (laughs) how have I ended up with thrush in my mouth? Trying to think of all the awful ways that that could happen. He said, look, it's not sexually transmitted. Like, okay. Um, He said, uh, you know, it's a it's a bacteria that uh, is that right? Bacterial fungus, mm, fungus. It's a fungus which lives on surfaces and all over the place. It's airborne. It's it's in our environment. But normally, the natural flora which is in your mouth will fend fend it off. Not an issue. The problem is that something's happened. You've had an imbalance in the flora in your mouth, and this thing's taken a hold. So I immediately said to him, "Hey, look, I've been rinsing my mouth a lot with Listerine." He said, well, that could have done it. I said, yeah, but my method of rinsing, my, like extreme Listerine Olympics have been going on here because I had been a bit lazy with um, oral hygiene in the past. And uh, I'd been rinsing my mouth with Listerine until it stopped hurting. You know, when you rinse your mouth with Listerine, like fizzing and bubbling and then it kind of goes numb. That's the bit when I was spitting it out. He said, oh, well, what you've done is you've, you've killed everything in your mouth, which is there to defend you. So I said to him, well, what, what can I do? He's like, well, do you have any fungicidal wash on board? I'm like, no. He's like, well, unfortunately, you're going to need to go to land or you're going to need to just put up with it until you get there. Now, I'm looking at a transatlantic here, which is a light weather transat. We're about six days in, seven days in. So I haven't eaten anything properly. Even drinking water is painful for four days. And we've probably still got another six or eight days to go. I'm like, jeepers, what is going to happen here? So um, I got on the horn to my um, my ex-wife, actually, uh, wife at the time, ex-wife, and she was very, very uh, aware of um, herbs and natural remedies and uh, the importance of understanding, you know, the medical benefits of, 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 of plant life. And she said, um, do you have any cinnamon on board? I said, well, I actually do. There was kind of a mix up in the in the shopping. We ended up with somebody else's shopping on the boat delivered by the supermarket. And somehow we've ended up with with cinnamon on board, sticks of cinnamon. She said, well, boil that up into a tea as thick and as dark as you can get it. And that's as good as you'll get as a naturally, natural antifungal agent. So I did that. And um, within six hours, I had relief from the pain. And within 12 hours, I was able to eat. And within 18 hours, I was able to say, okay, no longer hurts. This is, I'm past it. Now, I spoke to my MD friend, uh, Al Jones, actually. Hello, Al, if you're listening. And uh, he's like, yeah, well, that's kind of like anecdotal. I'm like, well, it may be anecdotal, but when you haven't eaten for four days and then six hours after getting advice, you feel better, you know, it's hard not to put the two together. And I think that was the point when I realized that when they were doing all this backwards and forwarding to go to the Spice Islands, which is the Philippines, as we call it now, even like um, Columbus setting off. Columbus wasn't looking for America. He didn't know America was there. He was looking for the Indies. He was looking for the what we now call East Indies. But instead, he found the West Indies. It was very convenient for him. He just happened to turn up in a place that had a similar name. Um but he, you know, when they were going looking for these things, when they were trading along the Silk Route, spices were the option on 
medical benefits. There were the option on preservatives for other food. Of course, yes, there was the flavors that they brought to the, the table, but they were a, a rich source of, um, of, of, uh, of, of medical uh, knowledge and medical experimentation and cures and all sorts of things which people wanted to get their hands on. So there'd been a lot of wars and, and conflicts all the way along the, uh, the Silk Route as long as it had been in, in operation. And by the 14th, 15th century, this gets to a point where people are like, can somebody please just find another way of getting there? So that's when we have the age of exploration. That's where uh, navigation starts to get really interesting because now there's a really good reason to go and explore the world. But before we describe what they did, we should talk a little bit about a few navigational anomalies which exist which cast a lot of mm, interesting confusion and doubt over the concept that we only really learned about the world during the age of exploration in the 1400s and i'm talking of course about the piri reese chart which was discovered in 1929 now if you've not heard of that before um, piri reese was a an ottoman a turkish admiral um, he drew a chart which is dated to 1513 and um, he says that his chart was created from about 20 charts that he that were getting into really bad condition there's all sorts of notes around the edge of the charts so it's kind of a, a narrative they had 20 different charts which were drawn together to create this um, this world chart the, the then known world particularly of the atlantic region the uh the coast of spain of coast of west africa and then the development of the knowledge of the new world so what was interesting to scholars and is undeniable is that Piri says that he used uh, a source map from christopher columbus so obviously 1492 crossed the atlantic and discovered some air bunnies there discovered the americas um, he supposedly did draw a chart when he was in the west indies but it's since been lost this is evidence from you know a contemporary that the chart at least made its way back to europe and there was some uh, thought at the time when this piri reese chart was found in 1929 that uh, perhaps the uh, Christopher Columbus chart was also in Turkey, but it was never found. So it's interesting already from the fact that it shows uh, the accumulated knowledge of 20 different charts. There's some interesting things to be spotted on it. Big rivers going into the uh, west coast of Africa, rivers that don't exist anymore. Um, there's some uh, more interesting research which has been done pointing out things like the Bimini Road which is a series of um, megaliths lying underwater off the Bahamas. People argue as to whether they're man-made or whether they are um, naturally occurring. It doesn't really matter but what does matter is that the Piri Reese chart shows them above the water. Very interesting. It shows a lot of uh, South America and down to about Rio it's pretty accurate. Then it sets off at a kind of, instead of tapering off down to the bottom of South America, as we might imagine, this chart then kind of recurves back to the southeast and then directly east and shows a large section of land there. Now, it may just have been that they were showing what more was known about South America, but with huge distortion, like 90 degree distortion. But some people have said and particularly people like Charles Hapgood, who was a, a, an interesting researcher from the middle of the last century, um, 
saying that it shows the landmass of Antarctica. That's what it's de describing. So Antarctica was not discovered until the second Russian Antarctic research uh, expedition, which was in 1820. No one had actually ever been there before. But uh, Ptolemy uh, put forward that there should be a big southern uh, continent um, that, you know, hundreds, thousands of years before, um, saying that the, it was needed to counterbalance the mass of the uh, continents in the northern hemisphere. Now, that's a complete like guess, obviously. Um, Captain Cook in the 1770s was able to say, well, if there is anything down there, it's much smaller than we thought, because I've just kind of done a lot of Australia and I didn't see it. But it was known as Terra Incognita for a very long time, the unknown land. Um, the Piri Reese chart, people question, is it attempting to show the coast of Antarctica or is it just a massive blurring of the bottom of South America? So um, Charles Hapgood uh, contacted the U.S. Hydrographic Office and asked them whether the coastline as it was shown um, was indeed uh, comparable to the new information which had just come in in the 1960s. And uh, a chap called U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Harold Z. Olmeyer. Now, okay, I'm reading from the computer here. This is the one bit I did want to read. Um, he writes back and says, Your request of evaluation of certain unusual features of the Piri Reese map of 1513 by this organization has been reviewed. The claim that the lower part of the map portrays the Princess Martha coast of Queen Maud Land, Antarctica, and the Palmer Peninsula is reasonable. We find that this is the most logical and in all probability the correct interpretation of the map. The geographical detail shown in the lower part of the map agrees very remarkably with the results of the seismic profile made across the top of the ice cap by the British-Swedish Antarctic expedition of 1949. This indicates the coastline had been mapped before it was covered by the ice cap. The ice cap in this region is now about a mile thick. We have no idea how the data on this map can be reconciled with the supposed state of geographical knowledge in 1513. The one that also goes with this is the Orontius Phineas map, which I think is from mm, 1530. Uh, Orontius Phineas also showed Antarctica on his on his map of the world. He did like a, a nomic production of the uh, northern hemisphere, a nomic uh, projection of the southern hemisphere, and include a pretty detailed look at Antarctica. Now, what's interesting is that were they just kind of totally spooling? Were they just making this up as we were going along? Were they following the Ptolemaic tradition of like there's something down there? It must be to balance out the northern uh, hemisphere continents, or did they have extra knowledge? That's a whole discussion for another time. There is a theory of navigation theory, uh, anthropological theory, which is that pre-Columbian transoceanic contact was made. And our friend um, Thor Herendahl, who I seem to mention quite a lot on this uh, podcast, he did another expedition that's a little less known, well known about called the Ra expedition. And that looked about whether the Egyptians could have had contact with South America and with Easter Island. There's a lot of very interesting evidence that points to the fact that uh, they did, including the fact that when some mummies have been opened, they have dressings and wrappings removed, they show evidence of uh, sweet corn, tobacco, and cocaine, all of which are products of South America and were not available in Europe at any time before the modern era. Um, looking at this data, more modern, more skeptical analysis has said that it must have been byproducts of the situation in which the uh, mummies were unwrapped by the original investigators. 
So I can only say that <laughs> that sounds like popcorn, cigarettes, and cocaine. That is quite the mummy unwrapping. Or was it on the uh, on the mummies themselves already? Because those people at that time, thousands of years ago, already had contact with South America. These are interesting questions. If anybody does have interest in this, um, pop it in an email and send it to me. I'm quite happy to talk about these things. I like to take in all information and then process it and try and make it into knowledge by balancing it against other sources, other things that I know myself from being you know, out on the ocean. Um, there is one thing which I think is, is, you know, we're talking about navigation, we're talking about position error. Uh, we, we're talking about historically how much position error there was. We work on the basis that basically we came out of the Stone Age about 6,000 years ago. That's the, the current thinking right now, that we came out of the Stone Age and we started doing pottery and we started doing very basic things with uh, altering uh, metals that were in rocks and making them usable. And we go into the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and we put aside our stone tools. We're still herding animals and we're then we're making little dams and now we've got some roads. And that's kind of how we understand it, right? And for the longest time, um, that was absolutely the way it was uh, it was seen. There was a famous situation in the late 90s where a university professor from Boston called Dr. Robert Schock um, went to look at the Sphinx in Egypt. Um, a guy called uh, Anthony West asked him to come because Anthony West had a theory that Sphinx was much older than the uh, 5,000 years, which is toted by uh, Egyptologists. When uh, Robert Schock, Dr. Robert Schock, who's a geologist, looked at the Sphinx, within a couple of minutes, he said he concluded that it was not all just wind erosion from the 5,000-year period that the Sphinx supposedly be exposed to... Um, the, the winds and the sands of the desert. What he saw was water erosion. And it's well known that the Sahara 5,000 years ago was a lush and verdant, um, you know, semi-tropical landscape with a lot of rain, a lot of water flowing. So the water erosion he was seeing on the Sphinx was caused by deluges of water. And then wind and sand had made its attack thereafter. But if it had been exposed to water, it had been exposed to water for a very long time for it to be able to erode during that wet period, which meant at the very least that the Sphinx is a lot older than 5,000 years. And this kind of research um, is now being... Uh, at the beginning, it was very fringe uh, when Robert Schock um, showed his first bits of evidence. Um, he was kind of laughed out of Egyptological uh, circles. There's a guy called Mark Lehner, who's a big mate of Zawi Hawass, the guy who's been in charge of the uh, Egyptian antiquities for many years now. Thank God, not in that position. But they said to Robert Schock, show us the pot shard. That was the famous quote. Show us the pot shard. Show us one uh, human civilization which is older than 6,000 years. Because Shock was saying that this giant edifice, this massive representation, which probably had a lion's head to begin with that was carved down then to a, a person's head, a man's head, that that would have only been possible if those people in that time were firstly, not nomadic, that they stayed in one place and they could engage in complex logistical uh, problems, that they could uh, work with stone, they could split stone, they could position stone, they could move stone, they could lift stone. You know, these are complex things for people to get me involved in. It has alignments with um, the uh, the uh, equinox and with the uh, constellation of uh, Leo, which is probably Leo the lion. It probably looked like a lion. All these complications. 
suddenly if you're saying, oh, okay, well, this was done more than 6,000 years ago. If it came from then, well, then that's a whole group of humans that we don't know anything about. What's interesting is that human skeletal remains um, in the fossil record go back to 300,000 years ago. Now, that is an awful long time ago. At that point, we had to start making some logical uh, conclusions. My, my time has been spent out on the sea. So I'm somebody who, when I see a horizon, I'm like, give me, give me, let me get out there. Let me, let me get over that horizon, see what's on the other side. As soon as I'm given the basic tools to do what it is, my passion, my spirit for, for sailing takes me further than others perhaps would go. If you're a musician, then it's music. You can get further than I can with music. Your, your genius is in that area, or it's sculpture, or it's numbers, or it's whatever it is that's your passion that you're putting all your time into, you can push further forward than other humans around you. And human culture is filled with this all the way through. And so I see the last 4,000 years of human history as being a constant development of particular individuals moving us forward. Their passions and specializations in particular areas have been able to push the entire human race forward at a, at a hugely accelerated rate. We've gone from, as I said, rearing goats and some basic clay pots and uh, the, the most simple forms of human culture. We've evolved that into where we are today with quantum computers. We're going to Mars, automated cars, all this kind of stuff. So I, I have no problem that it's taking us 4,000 years to get where we are right now. But something that's key to understand is that if you're talking about 4,000 years of development, you're talking about 130 generations of humans. If you take a generation to be 30 years, which is a, a basic average, and you divide that into 4,000, you get 132. If you take those skeletal remains, which are 300,000 years old, where we have the same size brain pan, we have all of the dexterity in our hands, we have the same um, respiratory system, hips, back, legs, feet, all of it's there. It's a modern Homo erectus skeleton. Those people, those initial remains, they're 10,000 generations ago, which means that even if we sort of like just... <laughs> blend this all together, get some easy numbers. We've got 9,850 generations. We do basically nothing. We bang stones together. We get the very, very basics together. Obviously, we're getting our culture together and communication and tribal law. But all these things, nothing happens. Even though they have all of the same mental capacity, you've still got the ability for people to be inspired individuals, to be savants, to be prodigies, to be all those things. Even though a baby is born right now who doesn't know anything about music and can suddenly pick something up and start making it happen, that just didn't happen for 9,850 generations. And then in like the last 150 generations to, to you know, pad it out a little bit, we do everything we've done now. It seems to me likely, and there is a lot of evidence starting to come out, that humans have um, been exploring the world and have been learning and developing uh, hard skills uh, in previous generations that we're not yet aware of. So when Mark Lehner was saying to Dr. Robert Schock, show me the pot shard, he was on very firm ground at the end of the 1990s because we just hadn't found anything at that point archaeologically which showed any meaningful developed human civilization prior to 6000 BC. Now this of course all flies in the face of the fact that the 
geology is a hard science and it had to be accounted for. But in the 1990s, it was an absolute ironclad statement to Robert Schock, like, oh, you think that the Sphinx is, uh, you know, nine, 10,000 years old and that the culture that made it was advanced and knew about astral alignment and knew about um, the constellations and the movement of constellations and the equinoxes. It would have taken them a long time to work all that stuff out, which then promotes the idea that these people that made it, if it was nine or 10,000 years ago, which is what Robert Schock said, they had already been evolving their culture for a couple thousand years. The change is that in the 90s, when that was being said, a little site had been discovered by a farmer, actually, in, uh, in Turkey called Golbeki Tepe. And Golbeki Tepe is very interesting. We think at the moment that it's been some kind of place where people came together to learn. It seems to be the first area that agriculture takes hold in that part of the world. And it seems that it was deliberately buried 9,800 years ago. If you get online, have a look for it. Golbeki Tepe in Turkey. Big standing stones, lots of big standing stones, but importantly, bas relief carved, which is where you've got um, elements, animals, depictions, which stand out from the stone, which means that the stone had to be shaped and these. Um, these images, these these carven elements were um, structured into the stone by removing other material, more advanced perhaps than making a big obelisk and then chipping into it. So the carbon dating that came back from Golbeki Tepe, when it was um, deliberately buried, which we know it was from the formation of the stones, the earth in that deliberate burying process is 9,800 years ago. So not just a pot shard, but very complex ruins, which point to a human evolution, which is a lot older than we might have thought. Now, how does this end up in a discussion with, uh, <laughs> with navigation and stuff? Well, firstly, this is meant to be the format of sitting on the side decks on a boat uh, in the middle of the night, uh, chatting about stuff. So things get in there. I've got a great interest in this, as you can tell. But the question is, what happened to those people? And do we have any evidence in myth and in older stories and in little fragments of history that comes down that helps us to identify? The thing is, as mariners, we know how complicated the job is of finding out where you are in the oceans. We know it in a kind of real world fashion of like, if you're out there, you're in a storm, it's all overcast, how do you stay safe? Then when people say, oh, the Polynesians, they navigated from the Marquesas 2,300 miles to Easter Island, which is like 10 by 10 by 15 in the middle of the Pacific, um, we can all immediately think, wow, that's like crossing the Atlantic with between 50 and 500 friends, all the logistics, everything to go and set up a new place, that's very complex. And we're actually in the group of people that can recognize just how complex that problem is. So if we're discussing the history of navigation, it's appropriate that we discuss how accurate some of the ancient um, navigation was, how uh, some of the ancient structures, things like the Great Pyramid. It's um, 475 feet on each side, and it's accurate to within 2.3 inches on each side. The corners are so square that they're within 13 arc seconds of being, that's you know much less than one degree. It's uh, you know 13 seconds out of 60 seconds in one minute of arc. It's like, this is highly accurate and more accurate than any buildings we've been able to produce since. Um, the alignment of the uh, pyramid is also so exact 
that it's within three minutes and 38 seconds of true north. And that is not magnetic north that you might have used, you know, basic compasses or something to, to find it out. That is to true north as though it's pointing towards the axis of the planet. How did they even know what it was that they were lining it up with? You can kind of imagine that they would have lined it up with, oh yeah, well you line it up with this, you line it up with that. The What was the pole star then? The pole star as we know it now has only really been in play for about 300 years. Um, if you go back 500 years ago, it was Vega was closer to being the pole star. So what were they lining it up with? How did they do it? Now, of course, people go, oh, well, you must think it was aliens. No, I don't think it was aliens or anything like that. What I'm saying is that there's clear facts here that we are only just now in the last maybe 100 years able to measure accuracy, able to measure position without very much error, like really accurately measure things. And we are recognizing that people's previous civilizations have had levels of accuracy which we can't really explain right now so we need geologists to look at this stuff we need um, physicists and engineers and people who have hard skills who are able to identify incontrovertible facts and add them to the record of what these people achieved and then any theory of how this stuff was done must include all of the facts rather than just being the uh, interpretation of people who, you know, if you go and get a degree in Egyptology, you're getting a BA. That's an arts appreciation degree. It's not a science degree. So we have a small part to play in these things as mariners, as navigators, as people that know about boats. We're kind of generalists in this particular field. And we do have something we can add there. If people tell us, oh, the Egyptians could never have got to South America, you say, okay, well, can they navigate? Well, yes, they can line their buildings within a you know, couple of seconds. Okay. Um, do they know about boat construction? Well, absolutely. The funerary boat shows uh, a, a craft we should easily go to see. Do they have the logistical means to be able to pull something like that off? Well, yeah, of course they do because they built the pyramids. So like, yeah, nothing's holding them back. They just need a couple of people like me, like you, who like to grab new horizons and um, you get your way through the Mediterranean. You get to the the opening there and kind of look out at the Atlantic and go, let's give it a shot. And if you follow the trade winds, we all know you're going to end up basically in the Canaries. Awesome. And then where, what next stop? What's the next stop? Well, I've done the transatlantic crossings enough time. Basically, if you just blow down the winds, just keep the wind on the, on the starboard quarter most of the time, you end up in the Caribbean. Like how long would it take Egyptians to get there in a boat with a sail that crosses the ocean? If they've got somebody who is passionate about it, their navigation could have evolved very, very early. Because we don't have any record of it, it's not necessarily because it didn't happen, it's because we haven't got any evidence of it yet. Evidence is starting to come through. So I would, yeah, keep, I'm just throwing these things out there to, to open up and spice out this subject. You know, the idea of like, <laughs> the history of navigation sounds like, oh man, this is gonna be a long afternoon. But there is more to be found there. And, uh, you know, dig around yourself, go and have a seat. Have a look at some pictures of the solar yacht. Have a look at some images of the Antikythera mechanism. Read a little bit about the, the pyramids in Egypt. Find out about Golbeki Tepe. This, these are your people. These are people that were trying to make things. They were trying to do exceptional things. They were trying to work out where are we on this rock. And if indeed the Great Pyramid is a representation mathematically of the planet, uh, <laughs> maybe they knew more than we thought. Anyway, so that's the first hour of the podcast done, and we have got things up to the age, well, we're getting close to the age of um, 
of exploration of uh, the 1492 and our, our friend uh, Christopher Columbus. Oh, is he allowed to be our friend now? I, there's all this woke stuff. Now. Was he some awful person? You've got to say, you've got to kind of um, raise an eyebrow to the fact that he sets off looking for the the uh, East Indies, or just the Indies as it was taught, called then, and then uh, the next place he goes to just names it that and uh, c- carries on. I, I Maybe I should start doing that. I'll just head for any port, and when we get in, I'll just declare it was the port that I was heading for. So, yeah, it's um, the the thing that we need to have a look at then uh, is to draw this back towards uh, <laughs> estimated position error. Remember, that's what we're meant to be talking about. Keep on it, Chris. Let's have a look at some of the other things that came through. The, the tools of the celestial navigator have been developing over the last thousand years. And these things were started out very simple. Things like the, the nomon was a uh, an early version of a sundial, and it's used to determine latitude based on the length of the sun's shadow. You can get a pretty accurate latitude. So they just use a sundial. That was the nomon, which is a G-N-O-M-O-N. G-N-O-M-O-N, that's right, yeah, okay. After that comes the... The Kamal, probably, which comes after that. The Kamal was uh, an Arabic navigation tool, and there is no doubt that the uh, Arabs were, were traveling far and wide. All of the trade that they did across the uh, Mediterranean. I think when you look at the Mediterranean on a chart, you kind of feel like, ah, it's just like a big pond. But if you're in the middle of it, it's, it's huge, obviously, and you can easily get lost, hence the Odyssey. But um, all across uh, the Mediterranean, all across West Africa and down, all across across the Red Sea and the Arabian Gulf and all that way, incredible navigation going on. And a lot of it done with those Latin sails that we still see in operation now. This was a way of determining, the Kamal was a way of determining latitude uh, from the North Star. There was kind of like a, uh, like a, a rectangular plate and you held it up in front of your face so that the top edge of it lined up with the, the North Star or the star that you would be using. Again, people go, oh, it lined up with the North Star. Well, there wasn't really a North Star. It's all moving around. The, the planet's processing on its axis. Um, you line it up with the star that you're using for your navigation. The bottom line of it lines up with the horizon. Um, you can then measure the distance between the plate and the tip of your nose with a piece of string that's tied to the center of the plate. So you get it so it's um, at the right, <laughs> the right amount between the star and the horizon, then you measure the distance from you. So it's a fixed length, and then you measure something which is where you've set it to make that star sit on the top of the plate and the horizon's on the bottom of the plate. So um, pretty, pretty basic, but they could use it to uh, identify the latitude of the ship. And obviously you wouldn't want to be peering over the top of your Kamal at the sun, but you can imagine you might put like a slit in it or something and identify the lower limb of the sun and then get it on the horizon and put it against your nose. So now, hey, hang on, we're doing a latitude at night and we're doing a latitude. We're probably doing two latitudes at night, aren't you? You're doing one as the sun goes down and one as the sun comes up and you're able to get a midday sun and you could probably, I don't know if they did it, they're pretty good at maths, the Arabs, do a running fix by taking one fix in the uh, the forenoon and one in the afternoon and then you can kind of run one on top of the other. So if you're moving around doing latitude calculations, you kind of got yourself covered. That's not a problem, but we're going to have to get a little bit more complicated in this if we want to reduce our position error. So that happens then in the Middle Ages when you get the astrolabe. And the astrolabe was the thing that was able to measure the height of stars and the height of the sun. And that's when we start to get into more accurate navigation. 
Longitude is still a problem. It's going to be a problem for quite a while yet, but there was workarounds that they were using based on pilotage, based on the waves, based on all that received stuff through history. They could know, okay, you remember in the, in the um, Mediterranean particularly, winds coming from eight different points are all named. So you've got your Mistral, you've got your Scirocco, you've got your Passat, you've got all these different winds. And just which way that's blowing will tell you. Like if there's a Scirocco coming up from the south, from the Sahara, it, everything's covered in red dust, you know, that, that, that way south. Right? So you can use pilotage, you can receive local knowledge, you can use um, your uh, astrolabe or maybe they still have a Kamal. Remember, these things would overlap over each other. So you could start to get, you know, look at the birds, look at the fish, look at the, the turtles in this area. It means we must be near that island and all these things start to add together. It's all a bit dicey. It's not very good if you don't know the area. There's still no particularly proper charts here, but then, you know, Piri Reese is saying that he got his information in the 1500s from 20 previous uh, charts that he was bringing together. So who knows exactly what accuracy they were dealing with on their charts. If you have someone for whom the passion is accurately surveying land, well, you might be, <laughs> you might be bouncing ahead pretty fast. Um, after the astrolabe, we then go into um, the quadrant and the probably the cross staff and the back staff, I think, are the next ones. Oh, yeah, okay, so the quadrant is developed from the astrolabe. It's instead of having a 360 degree um, disc that you were lining up with things, they realize obviously like nothing's ever gonna be higher than um, 90 degrees in the sky. So you can, the quadrant is just 90 degrees and you've got a uh, kind of a, a, a ring at the top and then on a ruler which was hanging from it. So you can hang this apparatus from your finger, take the ruler that's uh, adjustable on the astrolabe and adjust it till you get the height of the, uh, the, the celestial body that you're looking at very quickly they realize, okay, we don't need the whole round thing. We can just use 90 degrees of it. Um, the cross staff was used alongside the astrolabe and the quadrant. And the, it was a long uh, staff with um, sliding cross pieces and the sailors or, or anybody on land, remember people were surveying stuff on land as well, they could hold the base of the staff up to their eye and slide the cross piece until the, the bottom lines up with the horizon and the top of it with the star. So it's kind of like an adjustable uh, kamal. Instead of having a flat plate and you measure your distance to it, you hold it at a regularized distance and then you adjust these two movable parts on the cross staff that allow you to um, take the height of the celestial body. The obvious problem with that is that you're looking directly at the sun, which then is why I know the next thing that happens is the back staff, which is a variation of this, which then allows you to uh, stop looking directly at the, the, the sun, which is causing blindness. And um, it performs the same function, allows you to take the height of the celestial body, but you're facing away from the, the sun and you're adjusting the position of a shadow cast by the upper marker onto the back plate. So using shadows, much safer for the navigator's eyes and able to sort of, but we're starting to get into the fact that we're measuring angles, we're moving like pieces of material against each other in a very quick period of time from probably like, let's, let's even give it, okay, let's pack it out a little bit. From the fifth century, where you have the beginning of the compass, and then you've got the possibility of doing like dead reckoning. We haven't mentioned that yet, but obviously dead reckoning was part of a lot of navigation at this point. You can tell where you're going. You can guess how fast you're going. Um, now in the 15th century, in the age of exploration, we've got the backstaff, which is a development of the cross staff and the quadrant and the astrolabe and all those things. So in a thousand years, we've gone from like pieces of wood that we look through 
to something which is casting a shaggle, shadow, measures angles, and then what was the other part of the puzzle? Spherical trigonometry. And that was a thing that um, started to get us out and across the oceans. The spherical trigonometry is um, very specifically different from normal trigonometry because in normal trigonometry we work on the base of fact that all of the angles inside a triangle add up to 180 degrees and no more. Spherical trigonometry relies on the fact that the angles within a, well it doesn't rely on, but it accounts for the fact that the angles within a triangle drawn on a sphere can equal more than 180 degrees. So uh, interestingly, as an aside, <laughs> another aside, the aside to the aside is that if anybody says to you, uh, the Earth is flat. You heard this. There's like quite a lot of people that seem to think that the Earth is flat. I think it's um, it's kind of sad that we're at a point where we have to go backwards on some knowledge. I'm not sure if it's people just trolling or if it's people like having a bit of a giggle, or if they actually do think that um, that's what's going on. But you can give them this irrefutable piece of uh, information, which is that the only way that ships have been going from point to point um, for the last 1,500 years Arriving in ports, finding foreign ports, avoiding obstacles is by using celestial navigation. Celestial navigation relies on the fact that, no, it doesn't rely, Chris. It accounts for the fact that uh, the angles that may be created by your calculation are greater than 180 degrees. If the Earth was flat, this form of navigation would not work. We would not be able to go anywhere. We would not be able to get anywhere. We could do a different kind of navigation, which would just be normal trigonometry, but we would instantly know the difference, okay? So absolutely irrefutable fact that um, the world is uh, indeed a sphere is based on the fact that for thousands of years we have been navigating, accounting for the fact that it's a globe in lots of different ways, but most recently with spherical trigonometry. So and we'll do another podcast on uh, is the earth flat that should be a good one um, <laughs> i could do a i could be brian fontana out in the field i'll go and report every day with a tracker whilst i'm sailing around the world next time and we can kind of maybe we should do it maybe we should have a boat of flat earthers and we'll sail around the world because <laughs> i'm not even going to get into flat earth it's pretty it's pretty funny one of the things that comes out of it is the fact that if you think the earth is flat then the uh, center of the world is the North Pole, right? So that, okay, no problem, that's great. Uh, and then South America is like one of the far-flung points and Australia is one of the far-flung points and Africa is one, you can imagine, right? Now these things are on the edge of a disc, but circumferences are circles. Circumferences are much bigger than straight lines. So if you actually wanna go from South America to Africa on the flat earth model, it is a very long way. So if you're actually gonna cross it in a boat and set off at the time you say you're setting off and arrive at the time you're arriving, the only logical retort that a flat earther has is that you are traveling at whatever speed is required to complete the mileage their model says is involved in the time that clearly elapsed. So if they're there when I set off from South America and they're there when I arrive in Africa, and that's, I don't know, what would that take? I'm probably, hmm, let's say, let's say 20 days to give it a bit of, give it a bit of uh, a wiggle room. So we're gonna have to do all this different distance, which we know is, ah, what's it from Cape Horn to South Africa? Ooh, that put me on the spot now. Probably 4,500 miles, something like that. <laughs> it's guesstimation station. How far are things? I don't know. Um, but that amount of time it, on, a, on a flat earth uh, uh, model 
it's like 17,000 miles. The boat would have to be going at four times the speed it's going at. And if you complete that journey in a 40 footer, mathematically, you can't go faster than eight knots unless you're planing. So uh, <laughs> what, are you meant to, what are you meant to say then? Like, how does that model even stand up? But hey, no one ever asks sailors for their opinion, right? We just give it anyway. All right, so where do we go then to? So we're then after all of these developments, we get to the sextant, and that is the 18th century. The 18th century is when we have the sextant as we know it now, and it was uh, invented weirdly. There was a guy in America and a guy in England, oh, testing me here, Godfrey, Godfrey in America and Hadley in England, basically invented it at the same time, which to me smacks of um, maybe they maybe they chatted to each other or they saw the same TV show or something. I don't know what it was, but anyway, they invent it basically at the same time in two different places. And suddenly you can, um, you can measure the height of stars very, very accurately. You can measure the height of the sun very, very accurately. You can do the moon and the planets, of course, or you can turn it vertically. Uh, so you can turn it horizontally rather, and then you can measure angles. So you might do a running fix off a headland, stuff like that. Like suddenly navigation's getting techno. It's getting real, real good. And that really busts us all the way right up to the invention of the aeroplane, which we discussed the other week. Momentarily, there were bubbles up on top of these aeroplanes, even as late as like the 1950s, um, where they would be people, navigators, inside the bubble with a sextant. It's called a bubble sextant. It's a little bit different. It, you can't see the horizon, obviously, but you need to generate horizons to so use a bubble sextant. And it is they were taking fixes of the stars. Now, the planes are moving so fast that using spherical trigonometry to um, reduce a sight would be uh, too long and too complicated to be able to be used for an aircraft which is traveling now hundreds of knots, right? It's okay on a ship doing like you know, five knots, some six caravel in the 1400s. But as you're flying over Europe, you need to get more accurate. Obviously, the war pushed this a lot as well. So um, very quickly, we get into um, having sight reduction tables for, for aircraft. And they, of course, then become widespread across all navigation because they're accurate enough. Sight reduction tables is all the information that you need to solve spherical trigonomic sphere. Whew, let's go again. Spherical trigonometry problems. Well, I'll just avoid saying it later on. Um, you can you can resolve the uh, issues that you've got very, very quickly because the table has been pre-printed with all of the information that you require. They're logarithmic tables, essentially, with all the answers to problems. So for those who have been listening to the um, Joshua Slocum story, which I'm uh, reading at the moment, around Alone Around the World, in that he identifies an error in his logarithmic tables because it shows his navigation to be off by like 100 miles. And he's so confident in his method that he says, well, there must be an error in the calculation. So he goes through and indeed mathematically, God knows how these people do this stuff whilst at sea dealing with everything else, but mathematically proves that that entry in his tables is incorrect. And then he corrects the book so the book now gives him the right answer. So he uses his own sight and his own knowledge to actually correct the logarithmic tables. So what else can we add to all of this? I guess the development of the compass is the other thing we should mention. The gyro compass starts to get um, a lot more accurate. Gyro compass has a high spinning gyroscope inside it, which then is able to determine uh, the not the magnetic pole of the Earth, but the true pole of the Earth. The Earth obviously spinning on its axis. A gyroscopic compass gives you reference to the true 
axis of the planet rather than the magnetic axis of the planet, which had obviously been the way that ships did their um, the navigation previously. A detail about that is the fact that uh, ships, uh, when they became metal, uh, very quickly it became obvious that you've got the uh, uh, variation, which is the variation of the world's magnetic field on the planet. You can imagine it kind of like contour map of uneven terrain. Some areas it's uh, stronger magnetic field, some areas it's weaker, and that gives us this uh, a deviation, uh, no, got to use the right words, a variation in local uh, in a local area, which means that you might have a different uh, reading on your compass than some area that's um, not too far away. It's just a difference in the magnetic field of the planet. So mapping these uh, magnetic anomalies was a big thing they were doing during the 20th century. That's actually what um, Robert Falcon Scott was doing down in the uh, Antarctic. But I digress as always. But um, oh, an interesting point to uh, chuck in here is the fact that the has been an interesting alignment that's happened in the last couple of years. In 2019, the North Pole, uh, uh, the North True Pole and the North Magnetic Pole became aligned in the UK at the Greenwich Observatory for the first time in like 350, 360 years or something. So I think it was in September, September or something. And it was that the magnetic uh, pole of the planet is drifting around as we know. So from the UK's position, although the magnetic pole is now up in Baffin Bay somewhere in, in Canada, um, from the, the, the UK's perspective, looking up at the pole, the alignment was uh, absolutely dead on. And that will remain that way for um, quite, a, quite a long time. That uh, line, which is called the agonic the line of zero declination is the agonic, isn't it? Ugh, I hope there's somebody listening out there who knows more about navigation than I do to help me with this stuff. Okay, I think it's called the agonic, and it's the it's where the difference between true north and the uh, angle of a compass... Hang on. The difference between the needle of a compass and true north, that is called the declination. And when the angle of declination is at zero, that zero line declination is called the agonic. Okay, so the agonic uh, finally uh, aligned with the Greenwich Meridian in uh, I think September of 2019. And the agonic line, the zero declination line will remain in the UK drifting slowly eastwards for the next, uh, well, I think it was about another year or something after it. It's probably in, in Europe by now. But um, all of these things, look at me just spooling out all this stuff, all of this knowledge and awareness of our planet, how the magnetic field works, the axis of the planet, the stuff. How have we got to this point? It's been an incredible rise. And I think it's an incredible rise, which fits nicely into like a 4,000 year period. I can kind of understand that based on people being passionate about finding their way and exploring all the rest of it. Um, I just have a bit of a problem with the idea that uh, for uh, <laughs> 296,000 years, we just banged stones together and didn't look outside of our caves. So anyway, call me a conspiracy theorist. A lot have, don't worry. Um, so we need to go on to more up-to-date systems. And the more up-to-date systems that start to play a big part in the, uh, after we've got Celestial Nav and we've got um, the Almanac and we've got um, uh, site reduction tables, we're using logarithmic tables to be able to solve celestial navigation problems very, very quickly. The next things that start to happen, yet gyroscopic compass, very important, gives us true north. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I was going to say that um, since ships have been made of metal, um, the, the problem with um, variation and deviation, variation is 
the difference between true north and where you are on the planet and what part of the magnetic field of the planet you're in. All of those things are in your variation bag. Deviation is elements on board the ship, magnetic elements, ferrous elements on board the ship, which are throwing the compass off. And for the longest time, it was an issue. And then they came up with a nice, simple thing. A lot of shipyards that build metal ships are aligned north-south. Do you know this? So they're building those ships in Korea, like those huge Hyundai heavy industries things, building like Emma Maersk. It's 17,000 uh, containers she can take. That ship is deliberately built in a, in a slip which is aligned north to try and reduce the deviation on the compasses because they do, of course, use gyroscopic compasses, which are not affected by that. They're pointing true north, but they have magnetic compasses as well, as they must have for redundancy. And those compasses would be massively thrown out. When you're building a ship, when you're hammering metal, when you're shaping metal, you are in uh, you are imbuing it with a magnetic field and that magnetic field will be lined up with wherever you are on the planet and however the ship is orientated to the magnetic field of the planet. So you <laughs> you know this like you can kind of slowly stroke a needle and make the with a with something metal and it will become magnetized minutely but that's giving you like the most basic form of compass. Well if you keep banging and hammering a giant ship it starts to also become magnetized. And if you can align that with uh, north, uh, you then, well, I guess that's magnetic north, you then have a ship which has very little uh, deviation on its compass card. So there you go, God almighty, I know some stupid stuff. So anybody who's uh, got a basic understanding of navigation is gonna realize that so far, I have made one very large omission, which is that everything we've been discussing has been a discussion of calculation of latitude. Latitude is very easy to work out. Even, you know, with very basic tools like a stick stuck in the ground and measuring the length of the shadow, we can make a basic guess about latitude. Longitude, which is our how far east and west we are, that's a lot more tricky to work out. And it really wasn't solved until 1760s. The issue is that the planet is rotating. We can take an angle of the sun at midday, no problem, and we can work out um, our latitude from that. But if we're able to take a measurement of the sun at its highest point and compare it to the sun's highest point in the sky at some known place on the planet, suddenly we can start to work out the angular distance that we are from that reference point, that reference meridian. The planet rotates at 15 degrees per hour. It's just 360 degrees divided by 24, it's 15 degrees. So if you know, oh, the midday at um, Greenwich was at this point, and then your noonday is out by one hour, the sun is highest in the sky, one hour different from uh, Greenwich, uh, then you can say, well, we're 15 degrees removed from Greenwich. If you add to that a latitude, then there's only two places you can possibly be, 15 degrees before Greenwich, 15 degrees after Greenwich, and obviously, you will know, because it's your reference pointer, whether it's a plus or minus value. The issue was, there was no way of doing time. What they did have for a while, 
um, was the, what's called the Galilean method, which is that you could observe the moons around Jupiter. Have you ever done this? If you just get one of those apps on a phone, identify Jupiter in the sky, big, bright, very easy to see, just a good set of binoculars, and you'll be able to pick out um, probably three, sometimes four of the moons of Jupiter. And um, by observing them and by taking uh, notes and, and then what became records, which became tables of the movement of the moons of Jupiter, we were suddenly able to have a basic concept of time. The orientation of those moons to each other, we could work out some kind of basics of time. This method was used for a little bit of land survey. It's very old, it's Gal you know, Galileo came up with it, but it was not very useful at sea because it required very delicate observations with a telescope and just optics and the movement of this, the, the, the ship and you know overcast skies and all that stuff made a problem. So a lot of this is based now on work that had already been done in about the first century BC when you've got like Hipparchus, who is a Greek mathematician and uh, astronomer and, um, and philosopher, as they, of course they all were at that time. And he started to work out the basics of trigonometry. Obviously, we talk about Pythagorean trigonometry, but the basic rules of how triangles work, that's Hipparchus, and that's, that's the basis of trigonometry. He had started to put into effect an idea that you could measure um, longitude and that the math that the working of longitude would be based on an angle from a prime meridian to your local meridian. Now there was theories already at the time of working out longitude from the moon but it wasn't very accurate so they knew they had this problem they knew that the difference between prime meridian noon and local noon was the key to it but it was very difficult for them to uh, really calculate anything like this because there was no uh, way to know exactly what the time at the prime meridian was and then compare it to your local time to know, okay, it was noon there, it's noon here. The development of this then is, is Ptolemy in the second century who starts to come up with a, a basic gridding pattern, the latitude and longitude that we know, and starts to make some basic pieces of longitudinal guesswork judgment. And he's doing that, yeah, 1800 years ago. He starts to estimate how big the Mediterranean is, but he, he thinks it's like 60 degrees long in longitude from east to west, west to east. Um, it then takes quite a long time. We get, I guess we have to go all the way forward to Ezekiel, who is in like the 1050, something like that. And there's a crater on the moon named after this guy, Azakiel. His proper name, um, I would probably murder his name if I attempted to uh, <laughs> say it, but he's from uh, Toledo in Spain. And he's the one that started to work out exactly where cities were in Europe. So what they were doing is they were taking lunar eclipses, taking measurements of when the lunar eclipse was uh, observed in these different places and then afterwards coming together and comparing when they saw them. And by doing that, they were able to get within about one degree of accuracy in longitude. But that is a, you know, dual or multiple. I think they also did one where they lined up Toledo, Marseille and Hereford in England. They took measurements and kind of like identified, OK, we do the latitude. That's easy. But longitude, we need to do these simultaneously lunar sites. Um, of the lunar eclipse, which obviously only comes around once in a while. So really, by the time you get to the 1100s, there's, there's not much else you can do. You can take lunar observations, which Christopher Columbus took two separate lunar eclipse sites um, uh, during the period of time he was doing next, uh, 1496, and like eight years later, he did a second one, because he's trying to work out what is the longitude of this place, like how far were we sailing for? They're trying to get accuracy. They can make a guess, 
but they're trying to decrease their position error by using lunar eclipse. So by the age of exploration, we are still stuck with, yes, we can do latitude. Yes, we can do longitude. If we've got enough time using lunar eclipses, we've got a kind of like working system sort of for lunar sites, but it takes the development of the clock for that to happen. Interesting, Galileo almost gave us uh, a solution for the chronometer in that he he described an uh, escapement wheel connected to a pendulum, um, a, a method of making a regular movement from the lowering of a pendulum by a mechanism. But again, on a ship where it's moving, uh, not very useful. So it ends up being, um, I think it was the 1720s, there was a competition put about by the British Admiralty for somebody to come up with an accurate chronometer that could be used at sea. See, the issue at sea is that you can't use a pendulum because of the rolling of the ship and the other motions that the, the clock may be exposed to, but also the fact that um, the Earth's gravity can change by like 0.2% in different areas. So over time, you're gonna have a cumulative error. So even though, yes, we had basic pendulum clocks going on before the invention of the marine chronometer, they were not useful in this situation. The Even when they did start having springs on clocks and, and kind of had more of an escapement wheel with a weight, the kind of mechanism that we have now is what's called a, a resonator. The problem with those was that the springs that were being used um, would change their uh, physical properties as they were warmed and cooled. So if you went over the equator, then you went somewhere south and you came back up to the equator, you well, there was no way to know exactly how much the resonance of the escapement wheel had changed due to the soft softening and, and hardening of the uh, resonator spring. So how to deal with this? Well, the, finally, it was a Yorkshire carpenter called um, John Harrison, who, when was that? That was like 1760... One is that right? <laughs> I'm trying to do as much as this as I can without reference. He invented uh, the first marine chronometer, and what he had is two springs with two weights that uh, weights that went in and out from the clock. And because of the exact mechanism that he'd come up with, it wasn't affected by the rolling of the ship, and it wasn't affected by these alterations in gravity. So for the first time, we had a way of measuring um, noon at a known place, which became Greenwich very quickly. Um, the Greenwich meridian was the point, okay, whenever there is a uh, noonday sun at this point, we measure that with the clock, we set the clock to noon, and then however far we go around the world, we can measure the height of the sun or stars or planets, 57 different navigational stars. We can start to measure things in reference to Greenwich. And then everything got a lot, lot easier. These clocks weren't perfect, they still had some kind of error, but it was a lot better than anything we'd had before. But it's the 1770s with Cook setting off, as I mentioned, down to you know a map Australia and that part of the world, that we finally have accurate uh, maps and accurate navigation, which are you know the basis of uh, some of the navigational systems that we have today. So longitude has only really been solved very recently you know even going up to the 1920s where you have um uh what's the name of stuff 
Ellenvar. Do you know what Ellenvar is? Ellenvar is a nickel steel alloy which is used in bimetallic uh, springs, which means that resonator escapement wheels on um, mechanical marine chronometers uh, is not affected by changes in temperature. That was um, Charles Guillem, I think, and uh, he got the Nobel Prize for that in the end. Because and that's 1920. We're only just getting clocks worked out, probably properly in 1920. So longitude was a big issue for a long time. Yes, you could do things like um, uh, Joshua Slocum was doing, which is that he would take a, uh, a measurement of the angle between the sun and the moon. And then after a set period of time later on, he'd take another one and he could that was called a lunar distance. And it is a method of um, being able to work out local time. It has kind of had a bit of a revival recently. It was very, it was a big deal in the 18th and 19th century and it kind of died out a little bit. Obviously the chronometer was easier and better, but when we're reading the Slocum book, which um, as many of you would be following, um, and he's talking about doing his lunars, he's doing his lunar distance calculations and he's just using a clock uh, which I don't think by the end of yeah what I've just reading at the moment he's left Australia it's only got an hour hand but what he can do you see is he can accurately measure um, a set period of time the resonator in his clock and that one hand is enough to say okay we're going to do one hour's measurement here so we're going to take the distance between the moon and the sun we're going to wait an hour and we're going to do it again and with the tables that he had he was able to identify his longitude and as we know Slocum was was, was pretty good with that he was pretty accurate in his uh, in his navigation or certainly um, that's the story that he tells the question with longitude is one that um, we have to bear in mind whenever we're looking at any ancient monuments or ancient navigation um, when we're saying something is accurately aligned at you know this great circle i.e that it's on a line of longitude it's accurately on a line of longitude there has to be a kind of like question mark in our heads how did they get this accurately here longitude you could watch the sun coming up and down. You could align things to local conditions. You could align it with the hills. You could align it with the cleft in the rock where the sun comes through at the equinox. But if we're looking at things which are very accurately on particular lines of longitude, we have to ask the question, if it was before 1761, how did they do it? So when I'm looking at the longitude and latitude of the Great Pyramid, for example, I see that it's 29.979 degrees north. Okay, that's not too hard. That's a, a latitude calculation. But when I see that it's at 31.13 degrees east, then I start to think, hmm, it's kind of like these guys were trying to align it exactly at 30 degrees north and 31 degrees east. Um, yeah, these are questions which I say as mariners, as navigators, we are able to identify where accuracy is present that should not have been present, even if we accept the mainstream view of the pyramids that they were built uh, two and a half thousand years BC. So, you know, do your own investigations, do your own looking about, ask your own questions. But if it's really 1760 when we we're able to first calculate longitude, how were they doing it all that time ago? Okay, a final bit of trivia while we're talking about chronometers. You know, like in Times Square at, um, at New Year's, they have that big ball that drops 
Um, you might see it on other observatories and other places around the world that time is somehow, or important moments in time are somehow connected to like a, a big ball dropping on a building. That actually comes from chronometers, it comes from sailing. Everything comes from sailing. It's all so easy when you look at it through the lens of everything comes from sailing. What would happen is that um, the time would be very accurately registered and recorded at Greenwich Observatory. Greenwich Observatory is down by the river and it means that the building was visible from the River Thames. So ships would come out, they would moor or pause alongside at the uh, Greenwich uh, uh, Observatory and at midday a big ball would drop on the top of the building giving an absolutely clearly identifiable mark to the ships in the anchorage that this is noon. They could set all their clocks, boom, and now they set off around the world. So the very last thing they do before leaving uh, the harbour and the safety of the harbour is they get that noonday reference and then they go. So big balls dropping at uh, New Year, well, it's all to do with sailors and take that however you wish. Okay, so the next thing that we need to look at is the further development that gets us into the kind of electronic navigation that we have today. This is radio navigation and radar navigation. And it may seem that these like pop out of nowhere, but it's interesting to consider that we had been doing electromagnetic navigation for a long time before radio nav and radar nav because electromagnetic spectrum includes visible light. So if you've got lighthouses and things and you're looking at them with your eyes, you are receiving electromagnetic signal. If the electromagnetic signal is a flashing light, it makes it easy to characterize. And so when we started to develop uh, transistors and amplifying circuits and we had valves in play and all this kind of stuff in the 1940s, you get the development of radar and obviously radio transmission. Guglielmo Marconi in 1904 does the first big transmission. But if you can like have a transmitter that's sending out a signal which is known to you and then you can monitor its strength and a change in its strength, you can start to get a feeling like, am I getting closer to this transmitter? Is am I getting further away from it? If you've got multiple transmitters with multiple uh, easily clearly identifiable signals, you can start to like triangulate where you are. And that's where we get into some very interesting ground. Triangulation later becomes triliteration. Is that right? Oh man, I think we're deep, deep in the weeds here, deep in the weeds. Um, let me, let's just, we'll, we'll veer away from that for a second. Let's veer away from radio nav because that's, that's where we're ending up because that's GPS. We know we're getting there, but let's talk for a moment about radar. Radar started out as um, uh, radio detection and ranging. That's where the acronym radar comes from. Um, it was based on uh, an earlier system called ASDIC and it was the, the Brits basically trying to um, intercept uh, German aircraft coming across or, and, you know, in other territories as well, but enemy aircraft coming in fast and the desire was to work out uh, where they were coming from, how strong they were and get people up in the skies to be able to defend uh, whatever it is you need to defend, right? So the way that this was done beforehand in the UK, you've got those big white cliffs of Dover that face to the east, that face towards Europe. Well, into those cliffs were cut these big 
uh, concave, beautifully spherical uh, dishes that acted as focusing uh, elements to focus the sound coming from aircraft that were crossing the channel. The aircraft engines would be droning. That sound is picked up by this big dish that's carved into, and I think uh, reinforced with concrete, set into the, the cliffs or set into listening posts that were on the cliffs, but these big, Sometimes you see these like in activity centers where you've got like a, a big dish at one end of the room and a one at the other end. And if you stand in a particular point, which is the focal point of that dish, you can speak quietly and be heard at the other end of the room. And someone who's speaking into their own dish at their end of the room, that is transmitted by that big dish. The, the energy waves are sent down the room, picked up by the dish that's closest to you. And because you're stood in the focal uh, exact focal uh, length of the dish that you can hear someone whispering like hundreds of feet away. So this very basic principle is being used to listen for enemy aircraft coming, right? But suddenly they start to develop um, radar detection and ranging and suddenly they could bounce electromagnetic signals but in the 3000 megahertz range um, bounce it at what we call an x-band radar now bounce these signals off the aircraft and then pick them up electronically with um, with way how do how how far should we get into radar here they were picked up <laughs> and then um, you could you could be very accurate now what they had to do is they had to try and cover up what was going on a little bit because they didn't want the Germans to start twigging like, hey, hang on, they've got some technology and start making a push to steal that technology. So they put out the lie, the white lie, that um, the pilots were being given huge amounts of carrots, which contain carotin, and carotin's already known to help with the human eye. So their thing they put about, which is still now, people go, oh, carrots are good for your eyes. Yeah, in microscopic amounts, it's good for your eyes. But the, they put this out that they were feeding their pilots huge amounts of carrots and those carrots were giving them a much sharper eye, which was the explanation they wanted the Germans to swallow as to why their aircraft suddenly were getting intercepted much earlier and much more accurately. But obviously what it was, was radar. So radar has a, a rotating array, which... Um, uh, is able to ping out a signal in 360 degrees or down the arc that you've chosen for it to go down. And it is then listening for the return of those signals. It knows which signals it sent out because they're digitally encoded and it knows when it's received them. So it knows how long it took for that signal to get back and how much of that signal is returned gives you a very accurate range. Radars are very good at range finding. They are not so good at angle. So if you're doing... Um, navigation, uh, close quarters, um, certainly in some parts of the world where charts are not as accurate, radar is a very good way of working out your distance from something. You have to be aware of the fact that it's not picking up low rocks and you know, the low rocks, the ones you hit first, if you're going to go ashore, it might be picking up the cliffs behind the beach rather, but if you understand all of that, you can get a very accurate range from a radar. Now, why are they not so accurate in their, uh, angle? It's because as that, uh, antenna is going around, it's receiving, um, it's sending and receiving signals down about a five degree wide uh, avenue going into the antenna array. And it doesn't really know exactly, more modern systems are more accurate, but certainly back in the day, it doesn't know exactly from exactly which angle it picked up those returning electromagnetic waves. So it might have been at degree one, degree three, or degree five. So you could be five degrees out in your um, bearing very easily, but your range will always be very accurate. So um, 
doing uh, navigation with radar is it's an assistance to navigation. Obviously, it helps you in fog and all that kind of stuff. But if you're trying to be accurate in your position when you're going through a channel, if you're going into somewhere with very known elements on the uh, on the shore, which you can bounce a signal off of, radar is a fantastic aid to navigation to increase position uh, or increase position accuracy and lower position error. So see, this is all staying relatively connected to the things we were going to talk about. So I don't know how. Um, so what else? So then we get into radio direction finding. Oh, okay. How much of this can we <laughs> get into? So any discussion of GPS has to start with the origins of radio direction finding. So what they twigged very, very quickly, once they'd started to develop radio antennas, and uh, you know these were introduced prior to World War I, this is very early stuff, if they could send out a narrow tight beam signal down a particular path, and that some craft or some vessel could detect that signal, if that vessel or craft has got a directional antenna, they will know at what angle relative to magnetic, in the early days, magnetic north, what angle that's being received at. If they can then pick up another source from a second navigational transmitter, also transmitting down a narrow path, also being received on a um, directional antenna, by taking those two angles, you can locate yourself within the crossed crossing area of those two stations. Now, this was used early on. It is a very solid system. We could talk about RDF and then reverse RDF and all this kind of stuff. But the point is that there is a fundamental problem, which is that the signal, although it's sent out in a very tight beam, it does start to spread out, as you might imagine. And that once you get to a long distance range further away from the transmitting signals, it's hard to get accuracy. These kind of systems were used during the um, the early part of the war. But as soon as we got on to having radar and being able to do things where we're measuring distances, then we start to get onto a different kind of um, navigation. Instead of using triangulation, which is measuring the angles between things, that's RDF, that's the old things you've been sailing in the 60s or 70s, you have that little thing you hold up and then you tune in the station, and you try and take the angle of it, that's triangulation. The other method of doing it is trilateration, and trilateration measures the distances to things. And we could only start to do that really once we'd started to develop um, radar technology. So very quickly, we started to produce systems which were able to measure um, angle. Of course, you still do that a little bit, but then you can measure distance as well. And that starts in the 30s and was starting to be used in bombing systems and beacons in the Second World War. You see, there's an issue with a radar that if you have uh, a radar target coming in, um, and you know, it's a blip on a screen and there's an operator and they're looking at that blip and they're saying, hey, there's something coming towards us. Now that could be some lost Lancaster coming back, finally made its way home. You send up a load of aircraft or start the uh, anti-aircraft guns going and blow it out of the sky. So they realize they need to have a method of being able to show who was friendly and who wasn't friendly. So that's part of the beginning of transponders. Transponder is a specific um, radio receiving, often battery powered uh, 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 transmitting device, when it receives a particular signal at a particular frequency or a particular encoded signal, after a short delay, it sends out its own signal. That would mean that the radar operators, if they saw a single blip on their radar screen, 
it was the enemy. And if they saw a double blip, the initial blip of the radar bounce and then the second transmitted uh, blip coming from the transponders on board the aircraft, I think they were called Rebecca um, uh, transponders, the Rebecca system would then throw back this double blip and then you know, okay, that's, that's, that's our guys. So then you don't start firing at them. The distance measuring equipment that was being used on board those stuff uh, on board those planes and on board in that system is the beginning of hyperbolic systems and gps we finally got there <laughs> gps is a hyperbolic system just before we go into hyperbolic um um radio distance measuring frequency whatnot stuff uh, we'll say that um, transponders, obviously we have those on board our boats and we have SARTs. So a search and rescue transponder, which is something you take probably into the life raft with you and then poke it up through that little um, kind of snorkel thing that's on top of the life raft, that is doing exactly that. It detects an X-band radar in about a 3000 gigahertz range. When it receives that, it pings out its own transmitted signal, which will go right back down the gut of the um, radar and it will show an independent signal coming in. So when you uh, activate your SART, it's doing nothing. Then when it suddenly gets a ping off a ship, which obviously ships can have 48 mile radars, it will then ping back its own little thing saying, here I am. And how it says that, it does dotted lines. If you're a long way away from it, it will send out a signal which will appear like a series of dotted lines originating from your position and, orig and, and heading towards the center of the scope, which is the, um, the, the operator's uh, central point on their radar. That means that they can then turn the ship and start to head down that line, down that, that signal path towards you. As you get a lot closer to the ship, the, the uh, transponder signal will appear like concentric rings around you because the uh, radar then is um, getting to a point where you're so close on top of it, you can see the entire signal. And that means that you're then honing you down. So your search and rescue transponder comes from technology which is based on the Rebecca transponders used in the Second World War by, by the British um, um, Fighter and Bomber Command. Hyperbolic systems are a little bit different. They're better known by the names like Decker and Loran and Loran C and stuff like that. But basically what the concept is with that is that if you have two stations which are both producing signals, known signal types that you're ready to receive, and those two signals can be highly attuned to each other, timed to each other, in phase with each other, then if you're exactly positioned halfway between the two transmitters and the two signals are sent, when you receive them, there will be a time difference between when it was sent and when it was received, and you'll be able to compare the two to understand your distance. You know how fast the signal is propagating, you uh, have received this signal, it's got X amount of difference from the point at which it was sent and the point at which you've received it, which is encoded into the signal. So now you're in a situation where you have a piece of information which you can be very, very sure of. This radio direction signal is being sent out from this transmitter and there's this amount of time before you received it. If you're halfway between two transmitters which are in phase with each other, you'll receive the signals at the same time. If you're closer to one transmitter than the other, you'll receive that transmitted signal earlier than you receive the other one. It will take longer for the other one to propagate to you. So if you have the correct navigational chart, which has what's called hyperbolic lines drawn onto it, these are the old Decker charts, it has lines shown on the chart which says, um, this signal coming from this point will take X amount of time to get to this point. Now the signals are propagating out in 360 degrees 
obviously on a, mar a marine chart, we are looking at what's on the surface. So we see that as a, a circular, a curved line, these hyperbolic lines can be arrayed across the charts. So you know, oh, okay, well, I'm getting this signal with a specific uh, timing change, and I'm getting this other signal, which has got a different timing change. The areas in which that can happen are very specific. Each transmitted station would know, okay, by the time you're on this line on the chart, it'll take X amount of time for this signal to get to you. When you're on this next line, it's a little bit more time and so on and so forth. So you've got these concentric circular lines radiating out from the transmitting stations and multiple stations overlapping each other. So suddenly it's very easy to work out where you are. The difference was when we started to get into hyperbolic systems which are no longer terrestrially based, this is what GPS is. So GPS is a system which first went into operation in the early 90s. It, militarily, it was available a little bit before that, but when it started to become um, part of the, the general kind of um, uh, way of things for sailors was the, the 90s. And it was very much uh, a crossover. You were using DECA, Loran was another one of these hyperbolic systems. And you could have systems that, which had mixed uh, global positioning uh, satellite system mixed in with Loran and there was a kind of crossover between the two. When it starts to become that the GPS system takes over, what we are relying on then is relying on satellites which have got uh, a signal which they're pumping out, which is being directed down to the uh, surface of the Earth, and the distance from that satellite is a fixed and known value because a satellite knows how far it is off the planet. And the position of the satellite is known to itself in relation to all of the other satellites that are in the system. So it's able to transmit where it is and it's able to transmit a signal which then your onboard system can compare the coded signal that's sent out from the satellite and work out What's the time difference from when it was sent and when it was received? How, though, are we able to keep all of these systems all synchronized to each other to be able to do these very complicated calculations? Atomic clocks. Timepieces inside these satellites, obviously highly accurate modern timepieces. So all the satellites are in phase with each other. And then for you as a receiver on the ground, you are able to receive the signal from the satellite and your your system on board your boat is able to decode, work out what's the local time by comparing all the different satellites. It's able to work out when the, sat the satellite sent out that batch of signals it's just received and how long it took to get from that satellite to you. And it's probably doing it with six or seven satellites at any one time. There are 24 satellites in the system and there are actually multiple systems in place, which is kind of an interesting thing, which I think gets lost um, in the, the mix sometimes, but there are more than one system. There's uh, the American system, which we all know of, which is the GPS system, the global positioning system, which I think has become kind of ubiquitous now for all the different systems. But there is, of course, also the ones that are function in Russia, in Europe, in Japan and India. And you can get systems now which have um, dual band function. They're able to pick up more than one satellite system. So when I hear people say, oh, but what happens if the um, GPS gets turned off? Well, you'd have to have America turn it off. You'd have to have Glosnass turned off by Russia. You'd have to have Beidou turned off, which is the Chinese one. And you'd have to have Galileo turned off. Now, in different regions, they also have their own systems. So you'd have to have a lot of different systems and a lot of competing governments all turn them off. Now, 
we should remember that there was a period which only finished in 2000, I think it was. Was it not Bill Clinton that signed the law? There used to be um, selective availability, which was that the accuracy of the GPS system was always held low so that the um, United States military had the really uh, accurate version of it. And us, the users, the, 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 the plebs down at the bottom, we only got a very kind of detuned version of it. So the... Uh, selective availability was the thing which then got turned off in the 90s, which suddenly we had this new level of accuracy. Our position error dropped. The system could have provided that accuracy previously, but because it was deliberately uh, tuned down for the for the uh, civilians, um, it, it wasn't as accurate as it might be. Now, of course, my fridge knows where it is. My phone knows where it is. My computers know where they are. Like my dishwasher, like everything has a GPS on it and they're all highly accurate. Um, we live in a world now where position error is almost a thing of the past, almost a thing of the past, but it can be a, a mega big problem if you start to push it too much and start to trust it too much. So, We've getting to the end of this now. We're getting to the point where we're in modern day GPS territory. We have these systems up in space using triliteration, which are hyperbolic systems. They are transmitting a coded signal. You are comparing the time on board the satellite, which is atomic clock verified, to your local position. You're doing that with multiple satellites. And now, as we know, since selective availability has been turned off, we have got a pretty accurate system. This can still be augmented by the WAAS and the DGPS systems, which are differential systems and wide area augmentation systems, which are transmitter-based stations, which add to the accuracy of the GPS. But basically we've got, God knows what I've forgotten about in all this, but we've got to the point now where we have GPS electronic navigation. So whew, through all of this, what do we shake out to? We're into the last 10 minutes of how long I thought this would take, two hours. <laughs> we've done the history of the world, the pyramids. We've done the uh, clockwork mechanisms from the Greeks. We've done all sorts of things, back staffs, astrolabes, you name it, we've gone in there. But the key we get to is the fact that over about 4,000 years, we have dialed this down now between pilotage, local knowledge, GPS systems, coastal navigation systems. We have got accurate measuring of angles, accurate measuring of time, and now the ability to accurately measure where we are. Like it sounds perfect. So how does it go wrong? That's the thing. Estimated position error. What is this thing that I talked about at the very beginning of it? It is possible for the satellite system to um, start to show you incorrect values that your onboard sensors due to electromagnetic interference, due to freezing of the BIOS system, the operating system within the GPS, due to errors on board the um, satellites, due to the fact that your system is unable to see in a particular direction. Maybe there's something metal in the way of the antenna when you're using chart plotters which are down below decks and are looking up through the decks to get their signals from the satellites. If there's something metallic on deck which is blocking the signal, there's carbon fiber blocking the signal or whatever it is, you can end up with error in your calculation. This is something that if you just come at, this is why I didn't want to just say, hey, be careful of you know position error you should have this thing displayed on your on your uh, 
chart at all times so you know how much the error is. Once you understand the history of navigation, you understand that we have come from a period of like just guessing and looking at waves and learning things with palm fronds and shells and we've come a long way down this path but we are still on our way to somewhere else and we're not there yet. So you can look at the chart, you can look at that little icon of a boat and go, oh, there we are, we're just passing uh, 20 meters to the east of this rock. You gotta understand how much error there is in it. Whilst you may be able to position your boat much more carefully than any previous navigators in like the history of the world, certainly the accepted history of the world, you don't know the error which is inherent in that little point on that chart. We've got satellites in space. We've got all sorts of things going on in the atmosphere. We've got things going on board your boat. We've got things going on inside your chart plotter. It's essential that you still reference how much error is on the um, is on the uh, GPS signal. Now we would have seen this previously as your horizontal dis dissolution of precision, which is a value which has no real, you see as HDOP on your chart plotter, it has no real kind of like connection to reality, like the value goes up and that means one thing and the value goes down, that means, what you need to have is on your chart plotter, into your log goes your EPE. So what we have on our uh, logbook is that where it says uh, latitude and longitude, GPS position, it's being inputted from any number of units which is in front of us. And before you mark that down, you have to enter the EPE, which comes off the main chart plotter. And I've seen values on that of 100 meters. Yeah, Not one meter, not 10 meters. I've seen numbers on there of 100 meters. Now, it normally hovers around 7 to 10 meters, something like that, when you're in the open ocean. There was, unfortunately, an incident that happened in the Caribbean a number of years ago where a vessel proceeding north from, I think, Antigua ran aground on, um, I guess it must have been the edge of Montserrat. I, don't, I, I went looking for it online, and try as I could, I, I couldn't find the details now, but I know I read it. And it was um, basically their GPS was out by about 200 meters. And unfortunately, that grounding ended in fatalities. Um, the yacht was lost and it's because they were skirting around an island and using GPS like a kind of, and I'm in no way criticizing the people on board that boat. They're doing what I do, what you do, what a lot of us do, which is use the GPS like it's some kind of computer game, like avoid the yellow bits and the green bits and the dark blue bits. And um, well, it was out, it was out by quite a long way. So how can it end up being out? It can end up being out because of things like solar flares. Solar flares, the moon, uh, sorry, the moon, the sun goes through um, a cycle about every 11 years. The last one was about 2013, where it goes through a period of much stronger solar radiation. These massive eruptions on the surface of the, of the sun um, create huge amounts of gamma radiation, which then, as the planet is flying around the sun, doing its thing, it's got its um, atmosphere protecting it from a lot of the radiation. Up in the atmosphere, um, these sun large spikes of ionized radiation it can cause this signal to scintillate. And when that happens, you can get a delay between the propagation of the signal from the satellite and its reception, which instantly throws you out by quite a long way. Not because you're moving that fast, but because the satellites are moving fast. So if you're suddenly getting a change in the way that the signal is propagated from that hyperbolic system, see, you know what all this stuff is now, that hyperbolic system using trilateration, using the timing between the satellite and your position to help your unit find out where it is, 
once that is thrown off by the, the signal propagating at a different than expected rate, you've got a big problem. The other issue, and that is the International Association of Lighthouse Keepers well, seven years ago put out a report pointing out the fact that the GPS system is not robust. It doesn't have many fallbacks. It only works between particular areas of latitude. Um, it doesn't not in any way add up to an absolutely solid option. If you've got a dual band system, which is using GLOSNAS as well, or it's using um, uh, the UK, uh, sorry, the European Galileo system, well, that's better. But an outage on one of the systems could lead to big problems because essentially you're not, you are locked onto the satellites, but now they're not transmitting for a second. So your system does not update as to where you now are. They just run with where you last were. It doesn't like click into DR mode. So um, we have to be very cautious always to be looking at the GPS and understanding what we're dealing with, what its weaknesses are, and have methods in place so that we can deal with that. There's a nice thing which I found here, which was... Um, an article from Elaine Bunting in um, Yachting World. And she's looking at this. It's a few years back now, but everything that she says is absolutely clear. And she's quoting some uh, comments from the International Association of Lighthouse Keepers. They say, GPS is far from robust. Although reliable and accurate for long periods, it can suddenly and unexpectedly fail. In recent years, such failures have been due to a range of vulnerabilities, solar disturbances, space vehicle failures, unintentional radio interference and increasingly deliberate jamming. So that point about the deliberate jamming is kind of interesting because that is something which certainly if you're nearby big American fleets, you can find that GPS the, uh, is almost back to like selective availability if not turned off. And that, of course, is so that um, incoming ordnance missiles and what have you, which rely on GPS, are unable to locate their position and hence it creates a lot of position error for them so that they're likely to miss. But continuing on with the, um, the article here from Elaine Bunting, she says, um, with some GPS systems, um, outages don't even trigger an alarm. That's worrying on a yacht and downright scary when you think of it happening on the bridge of a fast-moving ship. The report is ominous about reverting to traditional navigation methods, saying they would force the mariner to revert to increasingly unfamiliar fallback navigation methods, such as chart, compass, and visual bearings. And I think that in the end is the point that I wanted to get to when I decided to um, make this E is for estimated position error. What I have um, talked about in previous podcasts is the fact that there's no good having a, a sextant and a load of books and stuff on board the boat that and thinking and then thinking that you're going to just jump into being like some top navigator. Even if you are highly skilled at doing celestial nav, if you are running um, if you're running around using GPS, getting as close to things as we do with GPS, if the weather comes in, if you have some kind of failure, if there's a lot of error in your GPS for some reason, there's no way of just jumping back into being the kind of navigator that had to negotiate the last 4,000 years of human history. That, that ship has sailed. You need to be on it like for 24 hours before they say navigation is the science of where you were well you need to know quite a lot about where you were to be able to work out where you are now in the slocum book that i've been reading we've talked a lot about dr i haven't really got into that now but for those who are not um uh, au fait with that dr is dead reckoning basically you know the compass course you're 
you're going down and you know your speed. And obviously the ways that we have of uh, assessing a vehicle vehicle speed, a vessel speed is highly advanced now. So we can get a pretty good uh, guess on how fast the boat's going and we know the direction it's going, but there's a lot of variability in that on currents, tides, um, uh, slippage as Slocum calls it, but leeway as we call it now. If you can't calculate all those things accurately, that DR is not helping you. It could give you a false sense of the accuracy of what you're doing. So what's the outcome of all of this? Well, firstly, uh, this is the sailing world that you are part of. This is the history of the science of navigation, which has come down to you. And when you look at that screen, you with, with your position on and with all of the admiralty details on your little navionics charts, whatever, that was the dream from like... 2000 BC. That's what um, they were trying to, uh, Ptolemy was trying to work out. That's what um, everybody down through history has been trying to get to the point where they could just look at something and it tells you where you are. From our point of view, we have to just not get too confused between the way that a GPS screen looks and the way that a computer game looks because if it switches off and you've been driving around like super close to things you've got almost nothing to fall back on if you're awesome at celestial nav and you've got open ocean within 24 hours you can, and you've got some clear skies you can be back on it other than that you're on a pilotage and the kind of pilotage you're doing is keep your eyes open because something may rear up out of the ocean some giant rock or something or some big breakers and that's your indicator of your safety so my advice to you is um, have a look at that screen on the chart plotter which says satellites and then it has all these different numbers and the HDOP and go online, learn what that stuff is. Have a quick look through the GPS thing on Wikipedia. Yes, Wikipedia is not a brilliant source for contentious information, but there's not much contentious about the history of NAV. You can pull down really good information. You can be both amazed by the miracle of, of navigation as it is now. You can praise high heaven if that's what you want to do for the genius of those that came before us, the giants on whose shoulders we stand when we navigate. But just also cast a little thought to the fact of like, how accurate is this thing? What is my position error? And if you can answer that question, you're a lot further forward in navigation because you have a kind of a holistic view of what's going on. You see the whole picture, you see what can happen, what might happen, and so you can play the what if game. The game of what if this thing switches off? How pooched are you? If you understand that, then I've done my job. Good. Okay, well, I hope that you've got some questions. I hope that you've got some comments. I hope that you want to engage more fully with this. Remember, over on Patreon, we are now doing the seamanship courses. We're not up to navigation yet, but it'll come. We've been doing things with safety on deck. We've been doing things with operating winches and the technology behind modern ropes and knot tying, all that kind of stuff. So check that out. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Of course, we're always on YouTube, and that's getting better and better with the help of the guys from Picnic Studios, Justin and Elliot. They've been um, helping me really increase the quality of what we're doing there. We've got um, gear reviews, we've got vlogs, we've got blogs, we've got all sorts of things which can help you get through long days at work when you're far away from the sea. So check out YouTube, and that again is the Mariner. If you do want to go sailing, as always, Spartan Ocean Racing. We are now taking orders for 2022-2023, and that includes the opportunity to sail around the world uh, on one of our 60 or 80 foot boats as part of the Ocean Globe Race. 
go to www.spartanoceanracing.com forward slash OGR and you're going to be able to see all the details there about what's going on. So if you fancy getting out there and doing some serious sailing, um, we can definitely help you out. But for now, I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound, that you know your estimated position error, and I will speak to you in the next one. Cheers.